Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast, ordinarily with Alison Pearson and me, Liam Halligan. Unfortunately, co-pilot Pearson isn't with us this week. We apologize for that. But I am glad to say I've got somebody joining me, another very special Telegraph guest. Danielle Sheridan is the defence editor of the Daily Telegraph. Educated at Leeds and Cardiff universities, she was a trainee at the Times before joining the Telegraph as political and defence correspondent in 2018, becoming defence editor in 2022. Having carved out reputations as a shrewd and resourceful reporter, Danielle's been central to the Telegraph's award-winning coverage of the escalating conflict between Russia and Ukraine. But the war's seen her displaying wider aspects of her personality too, not least her much-admired article, I went to war and came back with a dog. There was something about this little girl that stopped me thinking logically and setting her back down among the rubble felt out of the question, wrote Danielle in May 2022. We began making inquiries around the village to find out if this dog belonged to someone. Do you want to come to London with me? I whispered to her. She started licking my cheek again and I knew in that moment that was it. I was bringing her home. This is a sentiment which co-pilot Pearson shares, of course, as Planet Normal regulars know. Having adopted and brought home Diddy the Catch from the war zone that is her annual Turkish beach holiday. Alison and Danielle have also lately been finding Common Cause teaming up to report in the Telegraph on the quote's utter betrayal felt by many services families ahead of the MOD's plans to change the rules across the Army, Navy and RAF so that for the first time, housing is allocated no longer on the basis of rank. Danielle, we're huge fans of your work here on Planet Normal. It's great to have you on the podcast. Oh, thank you. What a glowing introduction. I wasn't expecting that. I'd also not really <laughs> thought about my um, article I'd written about Andy for years. So that was really sweet to hear uh, some of the things I wrote. She's obviously still as close to my heart as ever. We will be asking about pets because Planet Normal <laughs> fans are huge fans of pets, of course. And we've been hearing over recent weeks about the Turkish street cat, Diddy, which Alison brought back mm. from the Turkish coast. Just tell us about this work you've been doing with Alison on military accommodation, the utter betrayal that some army wives in particular feel mm. at the changes to how housing is allocated for servicemen, service women, and their families? Well, when the command paper, which was a refresh of the 2021 integrated review, was published last year, there was a very small segment that said that housing was going to be reallocated in a different way. And I remember going through it, I spoke to the ABD at the time, they confirmed that yes, this change was imminent and essentially it was going to do away with the rank structure so you could have, you know, a lowly captain living next to a general or something like that. And I interviewed Lord Dannett, he's the former head of the army, and he warned that this would be problematic because the whole kind of social fabric of the military is one of hierarchy and that structure of rank 
works and and it's what makes the army oh and the obviously this is tri service of the RAF and the navy so successful anyway so i wrote that story last summer and then i suppose didn't really think much more about it it was due to come into place next month and someone wrote in to Alison Pearson and expressed concerns and made it be known that this petition had been set up by army wives to say it's not too late for the MOD to think again and not insist on this rolling out. And to their credit, they've done a lot of work, this particular group of army wives who've looked into, you know, how much a person's home could be reduced if they're no longer being awarded housing based on rank. So the whole, going back to the structure, the whole idea behind it is that as you rise the ranks, you basically see a better package. And part of that package is a bigger house. And the military really does ask a lot of people, you know, they're not regular civilians, and they could earn a lot more if they worked in the private sector, but they don't. And the thinking has always been that they will be rewarded in other ways. So you know, um, having the continuity of education allowance, which means that they can send their children to school at a reduced price. This is private fee paying schools, of course. And then also that they can have a larger property as they progress in their career that they probably wouldn't be able to afford in ordinary life. And that all risks being taken away from them. And and another really key point that these women made and Alison reflected in her pieces was that it's not just about the house and the size of the house. It's also about the patch camaraderie. So currently you would have people of the same standing within the military living together. So you'd have all your, you know, your captains are together or your generals, whatever the rank is. And these people are sent off on exercise for decent swathes of time. One woman I interviewed was saying she's currently, you know, in Scotland with her husband. He's he's in his sixth week abroad, which means that she's in her sixth week of single parenting. The wives really do put up with a lot, but it's having that sense of companionship on the patch where the other wives whose husbands have also gone abroad on exercise can support and be there for one another. And you risk eroding the patch if you start mixing up different ranks and having someone that would be commanded by their boss living next door to them. That's uncomfortable in itself. I mean, any ordinary citizen would know they wouldn't want to live next door to their boss. And it was just creating more problems, it seemed, than solving. Anyway, as I understand, the wives that we spoke to did meet with someone acting on behalf of the government who made it appear unlikely that there would be any change in this It was called the New Accommodation Plan. It's now called the Modern Accommodation Plan. But these wives at a meeting in Warminster last week were basically told, we hear your concerns, but nothing is going to change. Then Grant Shapps intervened at the start of the week. Defence Secretary. Exactly, the Defence Secretary, and said he's now put the plan on ice and he's going to get to grips with it. This was all decided, you know, long before his time in, in the department. But he now wants to get to grips with it and figure out exactly what's gone wrong and how they can make it a plan that suits everyone. Because the biggest issue is that people will just leave. You know, if they are seeing their, not benefits, but the good reason to stay in diminished, 
you know, they're no longer going to get the big house. And I don't say nice big house, by the way, because the state of military accommodation is well documented. Mold and magnolia is a phrase that you use in your your writing. <laughs> yeah, that's one of Alison's phrases. And it's so true, you know, and it always rears its head, this the issue of military accommodation around Christmas time when it gets colder, boilers consistently break up and down the country. I've written about children developing asthma, Christmas holidays just spent in A&E with sickly children because they can't heat their homes. It's all just a complete disaster. So it's not even, you know, luxury accommodation that they get as they rise the ranks, but it's big. And size is helpful. So the whole thing isn't a great look for the military. And survey after survey show that military personnel are just fed up with their lot and they've just had enough. And if things don't improve, they're going to leave. And they are leaving because ultimately they can earn more money in the city. So with war in Ukraine, war in the Middle East and potentially war in the Indo-Pacific in the near future... We really don't want to see British personnel leaving our forces at a time when we need a stronger, more united military than ever. I'm a stickler, Danielle, for statistics, and I know co-pilot Pearson is too. In the Mm -hmm. article that you and Alison wrote together, 23rd of Feb, in the Telegraph, we'll put the link in the show notes to this episode. There it is up in lights, Danielle Sheridan, Defence Editor, and Alison Pearson, a fantastic collaboration between... You know, you, a sort of hard news reporter and columnist and podcaster, Alison, in the article that you co-wrote together, it really leapt off the page or off the screen at me. A record 792 army officers left the service early Mm. during the last quarter, compared with roughly 450 to 550 per quarter over the past decade. A real spike in army officers, the engine room of our armed forces leaving. That's according to the service personnel statistics. And you also cite that 2023 survey, the poor quality of military accommodation has been raised as problematic for recruitment. That survey finding the most frequently cited reason for leaving the military was, quotes, the impact on family and personal life. And of course, accommodation is key Mm. to that. Are you surprised that the Defence Secretary has responded so quickly from what you and Alison have been doing in The Telegraph? You know, I'm not sure. He has cracked down on things. He has responded to things quickly. But also Grant has been in this role, I think, five months or something. So quite often it is a completely new brief that he's still getting his head around and he has been throwing it at the deep end. You know, shortly after he became Defence Secretary, October 7th happened in Israel. He's had a lot on his plate. So I'm not necessarily surprised, but... I think it's great that he has responded so quickly because it shows that he has appreciated that this is a really big problem that could see people leave. Yeah. And we can't have more people leaving the military. That has got to change. You obviously think about defence matters extremely deeply before you took on the really senior role of defence editor at The Telegraph. You were, of course, our political and defence reporter. You've been writing about this stuff for many years years, Danielle. What's your thoughts about the future of the military or what's your interpretation of the military's thoughts about the future of the military? You know, we hear all kinds of senior people these days saying, is the UK still really a major military power? Of course, we are on paper, a major plank of NATO, of course. We're, we're a hugely important 
European military power. How do you think the armed forces view themselves at the moment? Well, I think from the people that I do kind of rub shoulders with a lot, I think that there's still great esteem and a sense of pride to work for the armed forces. Those that I come across are really proud to serve their country and believe that what they do is really cool. And I said it before, you could earn a lot more money in the city, but you would be looking at spreadsheets in London and it wouldn't be as exciting as being sent to Germany for six weeks to do an operation where you're working with incredible pieces of kit and technology that ordinary people don't get to see. And you will never have that sense of adventure that the military affords you. And also, you know, it does take a particular kind of person. And I'm not that person. I never had an interest in joining the military. I went to school near Sandhurst. Um, I went to school on a council estate called Collingwood College. And a lot of people left school at 16 to join the military. I remember growing up, we would have members of the forces come onto the playground and showcase, you know, career opportunities and and say, you know, I think the catchphrase was join the Navy, see the world. And that was a long, long time ago in my life. And I still think that that is a popular career choice for lots of people, particularly people that aren't academic and have itchy feet and just want to get out and explore. And then those that are academic, the ones that do go to university and then get their heads turned by Sandhurst and becoming an officer. I think there's in both of them, just it's quite a tantalising opportunity and prospect for for people that want something that isn't just inside an office block. So I think that the military is here to stay. I don't think it will ever lose that kind of glean, but it has major fundamental problems. And I think that people will want to keep signing up because I think that those that do have an innate sense of duty it's perhaps a calling that propels them into this line of work. I think the problem is once you're in it and you start to see the reality and that glean starts to soften and you, you get fed up with the crappy, mouldy homes that you're shoved in and you start to think, oh, I joined this because I wanted to make the world a better place and now I'm just, you know, my personal life is suffering. So I think getting people to join up won't necessarily be an issue, but retaining them will be and that's why they really need to get to grips with how they you know it's amazing that there are people out there that even want to do it in the first place you know sign up to serve king and country but what can't be lost is you know they must nurture those unique people that are willing to do that anyhow just to finish this point with war in Europe, a very possible outcome in the near future. I think that will also inspire people to sign up. I'm pretty sure when Afghanistan and Iraq happened, there was a huge rise in the number of people that wanted to serve their country. So I think that that sense of nationalism and call to duty will prevail. You mentioned when you were at school, Danielle, I'm very conscious. uh, (laughs) I've got quite a few years on you. Mm -hmm. When I was at school, in the mid-80s, defence spending as a share of GDP was 5 5.5% of GDP. And of course, the Berlin Wall came down in the late 80s. That proportion fell. It's now around 2 to 2.5%. You must come across a lot of people in the military who really want that number to go up. Can you see that happening? 
Well, you talk about our age difference. The Berlin Wall fell the year I was born. Thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> it's more politicians that discuss how much percentage of GDP we need to spend on defence. The regular soldiers and officers I speak to don't really talk about defence spending. Of course, they always want to see more money put into what they're doing. But the kind of gritty figures that we write about and that the Treasury mulls over with with the Ministry of Defence isn't something that I really kind of have many conversations with, with those people on the ground. Mm, but mm. I do think that there is a lot of frustration, and I'm thinking particularly of an, an interview I did once with someone in the Air Force, that people didn't join the RAF to sit in offices and do a load of bureaucracy. And this is felt among all three forces that there's a lot of red tape and a lot of administrative work that needs to be done. And they aren't actually getting out and exercising as much as they would like to. And paperwork is kind of taking over. And as I understand, paperwork is taking over and people aren't able to get out and about and do what they signed up for as much because of the problem with people leaving. So there's more work to be done and that's being taken on by the fewer individuals that are still here are just having to cover up other people's work, which means that they don't get to, without using the same phrase again, but you know, get out and exercise as much as they'd like. So there is elements of frustration and I think if the three services were kind of nurtured more like in a monetary sense, that might not be the case, whether that's because you're paying more people and attracting more people into the workforce or you've got a greater amount of capabilities. I wrote a story at the start of this year saying that two warships were having to be decommissioned because they needed to take the crew from those vessels and put them on the, the new class of frigates that are due to come on at some point in the near future. It just seems like there's this constant stealing from one person to feed the other going on. And that's not the sign of a kind of a healthy functioning system. I want to come on to your thoughts about the, the war in Ukraine and also hear about that wonderful story where you, you came home from the front line with a new friend. But just before we move on to that, Danielle, if I may, do you hear behind closed doors without breaching any confidences or naming names because of course you're a highly respectable specialized reporter and trust and with your sources is crucial but do you hear complaints from the top brass within the military establishment about the fact that the army the navy and the air force in the eyes of much of the public seem to be quite to use that awful word woke these days well i think that from conversations I've had, there is an acknowledgement that more needs to be done to make the military reflective of wider society. But these policies are being developed in Whitehall. So you've got people sitting in offices in Westminster, coming up with these schemes and telling people on bases up and down the country, you need to start educating people on this, you need to start doing X, Y and Z. And as I understand from people on the ground who want to see these changes, they want their workforce to be more inclusive. But the policies that are being made up in Westminster aren't thought through. And are, if anything, just as I understand, the sentiment is that they're just created to kind of tick and say, yeah, you know, 
right, we need to make it more inclusive on this section. Okay, well, we've created this policy. Okay, go and make troops adhere to this, educate them on it, school them on it. And, you know, tick, we can say that we've achieved that. So there's definitely a sense of frustration that things aren't being thought through properly and that there's more of a concern to just achieve targets than actually see any meaningful change. I don't think that there's any, from the people I speak to, by the way, and, you know, I don't speak to everyone, but from the people I speak to, I haven't got the sense that they're angry about this kind of level of wokery that's playing out. Although Grant Shapp saying that the defence secretary, had, we did quote him recently in the paper saying that wokeism had infiltrated the military and he wants to get a handle on this. So it's obviously a very divisive topic. Indeed. You've written quite movingly, if I may say so, in the paper about when you ended up going to Ukraine, going to the war zone, your, your shock at what you were seeing. It was a tremendously grown up journalistic experience, if I may say so, quite early in your career, but you were absolutely equal to it. And your reputation rightly has soared and and congratulations to you for that. What are your thoughts now looking back on the time you spent in Ukraine? And what are your thoughts on how this conflict is going to end up? Well, thank you. I must admit, when I saw the news of Navalny's death, I had a real kind of sinking moment in my tummy and just thought, this man cannot be stopped. So this is an opposition leader in Russia, Alexei Navalny, who is widely believed to have basically been murdered by the Russian authorities while in prison, though the Russian authorities, of course, would deny that. Exactly. It just made me think of the situation in Ukraine because, you know, it's a war of attrition. Putin has no regard for human life and he sees his own men as cannon fodder. He will keep throwing them at war until if Ukraine cedes defeat. I don't think that's going to be any time soon, but if Trump does get re-elected, then he's already said that he could end this war like that. He said he could end the war in an instant. And I know that really senior military figures in the UK are very concerned about a Trump presidency and what this means for Ukraine. And the reason why I started off talking about Navalny, Putin's main opposition, was that Putin's not going anywhere. This man will be in power for a very long time. And that, to me, personally, is distressing because, as you said, I have been on the ground in Ukraine. I've done eyewitness journalism. I have seen how ugly his behaviour is on a very human, civilian level. And I think that it's incredibly worrying for the wider state of European security. And I don't see him curtailing to NATO demands. I think he's not a rational individual. I don't believe he's scared of NATO. I don't think he'd be concerned about going to war with NATO countries. And I think think that it's a real shame that in 2014 there wasn't a stronger united western front towards his behavior when he annexed Crimea because I I know what hindsight is a wonderful thing but I do believe if we had been tougher on him perhaps he wouldn't have been so audacious in his behavior to date I do find it sad for me personally because I will never forget all those people I interviewed and the funerals I went to and the very kind of human element of it which was just communities and lives destroyed. But 
I also think that since that's happened, the attacks in Israel broke out and I went there. And once more, it was going to funerals of teenage girls and sitting through awful documentation of people who've been murdered. And I think that for as long as I do this job, it will just be, you know, there'll be another war in another country. We'll be back on the ground reporting all over again. And I guess that's a reality of war reporting is that innocent people get lost in the crossfire. War reporting is, of course, a particularly arduous and specialised part of the trade journalism that we share. I'm, I'm sure you'll have read the memoirs of the likes of people who've come before you, like Christine Lamb, like mm-hmm. Kate A.D., like mm. Martin Bell. And it's a hard task that you're setting yourself. But you've also managed, haven't you, to salvage some kind of joy from the wreckage. Just tell us a little bit. I'm sorry to have highlighted it in the introduction to you. It's just the, the parallel with Alison was so beautiful, though, mm. because you'll know from Planet Normal and our regular listeners know well that Alison plotted for months and months to bring back a Turkish street cat who she befriended and who now lives with her and her family happily in the UK. And you went through a similar but pretty different experience, didn't you, Danielle? Yes. I mean, it is funny because I often think about my dog and she has such a lovely life now you know from when I found her and she was homeless we don't know what happened to her owners um but she was living rough and being picked on by other dogs she's very tiny she weighs four kilograms and she has these beautiful ears with long kind of curls on them but they'd all gone there was one little like tuft left and she was just literally in the wars and how she you know is living her best life in North London and she comes to coffee shops with me and (laughs) has you know all these people that look after her during the day while I'm at work she's just lives a really lovely life did you say her name was Andy yeah so her full name is Andrivka which is the village I found her in and so we call her Andy for short but it was very touching so I found this we with the translator we found the man that was feeding all the stray dogs I say stray they were domesticated pets that were suddenly living rough and um, I inquired about the idea for me had originally been I'll just bring her to Kiev and put her in a in a like someone's home there and then that was impossible because I fell in love with her of course and this man Vadim explained to the translator that if I can give her a better home I should and he burst into tears it was really emotional and by the way his house had been completely annihilated you know it was just rubble and about four months later when we returned to Kiev and you know we went down to the south I remember going to Zaporizhia and other areas we stopped in on him he said via the translator this is so crazy you've just turned up because only yesterday we were talking about the red dog and because Andy has a red coat whatever happened to the red dog and then it transpired that Vadim's 23 year old son had been killed on the front line in the first days of the war crikey and I suddenly realized those were what his tears were about and when he said that moment about if you can give her a better life you should he wasn't talking about my dog yeah and I love her so much because to me she represents, I don't know, hope maybe. That's kind of why I felt like I couldn't leave her because of as not just about how physically cute she was and her lovely little personality, but it was about something tangible I could do to help. That sounds really worthy, I don't know. Embedded in the article that you wrote on May the 19th, 2022, there is, if I may say so, Danielle, with huge respect to you as, as a professional there is a truly wonderful photograph of you <laughs> and Andy yeah. amidst the rubble 
there was something about this little girl that stopped me thinking logically <laughs> and setting her back down among the rubble felt out of the question. Credit also to Paul Grover, um, who took that photo for the Telegraph, risking his, his life as you were risking yours. It's worth saying to Planet Normal listeners that the story of you and Andy, the dog, Telegraph readers can read about it. As I say, we'd put the link to that article that you wrote back in 2022 in the show notes of the episode, as well as the journalism you've been conducting so brilliantly, along with co-pilot Alison Pearson. It's been great to have you on Planet Normal, Danielle, and all the best to you as you continue with your journalistic career. Thank you so much. If you're finding this podcast interesting, you may also like Ukraine, the latest. Every weekday, The Telegraph's leading journalists bring you the latest news and the most informed analysis of President Putin's invasion of Ukraine, from our newsroom in London and from the ground. The Russian machine has been ground to a halt now for well over a week, and that is just staggering. NATO has to act now. It has to do more than it's currently doing. Otherwise, in this Ukrainian MP's words, you'll have to evacuate the whole continent. One video that we found to be incorrect was bomb squads seen in the Donbass region. The metadata of this clip shows that it was created in 2019, not today. Search Ukraine, the latest, in the same place you're listening to this, and click follow so you don't miss an update. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At Bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to Bluenile.com and use promo code Listen to get fifty dollars off your purchase of five hundred dollars or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And now on to our listener emails. Your messages sent to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. Alison and I love to read your thoughts and we learn so much from you, the citizens of Planet Normal. This is from Margaret in Hereford. It's commendable, writes Margaret, that you're highlighting the problems of changing the terms of allocation of army quarters. My husband was a corporal when we first married and he retired as a lieutenant colonel in 2003. So we've sampled the entire gamut from flats and maisonettes to houses. We put up with the dross because we knew with each promotion, the accommodation would be better up to a point. In all my husband's 37 years of service, not once did I hear a wife complaining that the sergeants or officers are unfairly given better housing. There's no greater incentive to promotion. It was said that one could tell the standard by the street name. The older the battle name, the worse the house would be. We started off in 33 Lucknow in Tidworth. I can't really see a commanding officer of a regiment whose children have left the family home being complacent about living in a block of flats opposite a Lance Corporal in his regiment who's newly married and has no children. It just won't work. 
Many thanks, Margaret. Here's another one on the same issue from Lawrence. A huge number of emails from Planet Normal listeners on this. Lawrence is a retired RAF group captain, he says. He served with pride for 34 years and moved between something like 15 different married quarters and home and abroad. You're only right in everything you say, says Lawrence, and one can only see the potential dismemberment of our armed forces at a time when we should be consolidating and multiplying. Those that will leave will be the experienced captains and majors and their equivalents. And you can't create instant experience. This will create a 10-year weakness in leadership. As always, the best will go because they're more confident of their transferable skills and will be left with the mediocre to travel up through the ranks, diluting the high-level MOD leadership and decision-making skills that we need. There's one concern, though, that you've not mentioned. Already in the Telegraph Digital comments and on other forums, this issue is creating rancor and discord between officers and other ranks. Serving junior personnel are calling officers and their wives snobs and other names. Junior ranks benefit enormously from the MAO, that's the Military Accommodation Offer, this new incoming Ministry of Defence regime when it comes to accommodation. But the resistance, sends Lawrence, from officers is seen as defining junior ranks as an underclass or common people. Nothing could be further from the truth, of course, but it's difficult to define positively the social support you get from being within your own circle. I dread to think of how a dispute between future neighbours, a captain with no children and a corporal with three children, would pan out without it becoming a slanging match that would destroy discipline and cohesion, the very elements we need in our armed forces. With warm regards, Lawrence Barnes. And this is from Victor on the same subject. So many emails. Danielle and Alison clearly have touched a huge nerve here. Well done, says Victor. Congratulations. Alison's feature article in last Saturday's Telegraph about the pathetic policy to change how army accommodation was to be allocated has really hit home. I read today that the policy is now on hold. You really are superb highlighting some of this government's nonsense policies and the spineless politicians behind them, Victor says to Alison. As the father of two decorated ex-army servicemen, thank you again. As always, bang on target. That's Victor. And here's one from Anthony in response to my interview last week with George Galloway, who is, of course, running in the Rochdale by-election. Some time ago, I met George Galloway when I was his son's year one class teacher. Once a week, Mr Galloway would pick up his son from school. He would stride across the playground, donning his signature hat like a gunslinging sheriff. Chatting to him one of these afternoons, he offered to organise a class trip to the Palace of Westminster. I was concerned the children were too young. At that age, they're still learning to spell phonetically and some E-A-L, English as an additional language, children were struggling with basic words, never mind the complexities of Parliament. But what a kind offer, writes Anthony, and an extraordinary opportunity for the class. I was extremely grateful. A few weeks later, the trip went ahead. It was a huge success. After seeing the great debating chambers, George and his team led the wide-eyed posse of children to one of the many oak-panelled meeting rooms. As the four- and five-year-olds sank into their huge seats with their chins and noses barely visible above the vast conference table, a wonderful image, George Galloway began his talk on the history of Parliament and democracy. His passion and knowledge was more than evident, and he pitched his words carefully for the young audience. Children that age often seize on details, and when George mentioned that the palace had been bombed, a standoff with young Joel began. Shooting from the hip, Joel fired question after question. It was a relentless 10-minute interrogation. 
I know I should have intervened, but George, being a skilled politician, was patient and answered his numerous questions about bombs, fire, planes, and his favourite flavour of crisps, true in brackets, skillfully. So although, like you, Alison and Liam, I do not agree with George Galloway's views, my impression was incredibly positive. He's passionate and tries to influence the world the way he sees it through democratic channels. Just stop oil, take note, writes Anthony. Well done to you both for bringing people of opposing perspectives to the podcast. Finally, I would have loved to explore more about his knowledge of Arafat, the former leader, of course, of the Palestine Liberation Organization, Yasser Arafat. My understanding is that he, Arafat, missed a great opportunity to agree to the two-state solution in the year 2000 at Camp David. It's also reported that Arafat died an incredibly wealthy man who, it is claimed, benefited financially from the plight of the poor Palestinians. We also hear a lot about what Israel's done wrong in the region, but I wonder what George believes Israel has done well. I'm a curious and open-minded to different views, so I wonder what George's response would be. If only I could track down Joel to ask him. <laughs> thank you, Alison and Liam, for your brilliant work, and thank you again, George Galloway, for that wonderful school trip all those years ago. I must say, it's really wonderful to read out that email. Alison and I did think hard before we asked George Galloway onto the podcast. The co-pilot clearly disagrees with him very vehemently on Israel-Palestine and he with her, yet she was keen to have him on, he was keen to come on, and now we've had an email from Planet Normal Listener who clearly disagrees with George Galloway, but is keen to find and record and report some positive aspect of his character that he witnessed earlier in his life. That is what Planet Normal is about. And finally, here's one from Brian. Dear Alison and Liam, I often tend to write, but I don't get round to it. But I will sort that out. Don't worry. Thanks, Brian. Sophie Winkleman, says Brian, talking about the use of screens in schools really got me. Sounds like a kink song, doesn't it? Not least because the primary school my teacher goes to is still doing parent-teacher interviews online in 2024. And why? Because they signed up to an excruciatingly expensive software package for this on a long-term contract during COVID. That's why. The result being that there's no rapport built up whatsoever between parents and teachers and it's so difficult to really find out how your child is actually performing or integrating. That's just one more small example of huge public sector waste before one even scratches the service of the NHS or the civil service itself and not beneficial to the children and their education or development. And on top of that, says Brian, the schools also asked every family to make a quote a voluntary donation to help with the purchase of iPads because, as they always do, they cry about having no money. I'm respectfully going to point them in the direction of Sophie Winkleman's campaign. So thanks to her for that and to you for interviewing her. Keep fighting, Brian. And on that bombshell, that's it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reason views. Email of the week, it's got to be my turn because Alison's not here. I am going to give it to Victor for his fabulous email about the military. So Victor... Do send in your postal address to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Put word mug winner in the subject heading of the email and we will send you a rarest rocking horse poo Planet Normal mug. If you enjoy Planet Normal, and we hope you jolly well do, do leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps others to find us. And as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the madness of Planet Earth comes back into view. Thanks as ever to our producers Isabel Bouchard, Casso, and Louisa Wells. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me 
and goodbye from Alison too. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.